All right, the passage we will be studying this evening is Habakkuk verses 12 to 14. Let's read our passage. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we pick up here in verse 12, um, continuing in our study. We know at this point God is continuing to speak, to answer Habakkuk and to pronounce against this judgment against the nation of Babylon, who is about to unjustly and wickedly um, destroy um, Israel. So we, uh, we look at this uh, passage in that context, knowing that God is now pronouncing a woe against, these, uh, against Babylon, against these wicked people for, for their w- wicked acts, even though God himself has raised Babylon up to carry out his judgment. So verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. So at first, we notice that what God is pronouncing here is he's pronouncing a woe. He, this is a, a passage of judgment against those who commit bloodshed and commit violence to grow in uh, worldly wealth, to grow in personal gain, whatever um, things they seek after in this, on this earth. But they do it in a very, very wicked way. Um, the scripture speaks against uh, these men who uh, are always conquering and oppressing people for the sake of their personal gain, um, using deceit and bloodshed. <clears throat> One example uh, in scripture we have is in uh, Amos. Amos chapter 8. Verses four to six. Amos eight, four. Hear this, you who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money? and the needy for a pair of sandals, that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. So here, this example is one of deceit, not necessarily bloodshed, but deceit in this situation. And and how they're, what they're wanting to do is oppress the needy of the land and to take and to cheat and to steal. These are the type of men who raise themselves up with their wickedness and their earthly pleasures and at at all costs. Um, they're willing to sell the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, it says in verse 6. So in, in that same way, um, bloodshed and the man of deceit and the man of bloodshed are often put together in Scripture, as we'll see. Um, it's not far from them to do both, to cheat the people and to destroy the people. Um, we have some more examples of this in Proverbs. We'll start in... Uh, Proverb chapter 1. 
Proverbs chapter 1, uh, verses 10 to 19. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall, have, we shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. So in verses 10 to, um, to 16, um, the proverb is describing how we, or the wisdom is telling the son to not be enticed to be with these sinners. They, they lie in wait and ambush and their goal is wealth. It says in um, verse 13, we will fill our houses with spoil. So this is their goal. They want to oppress and to kill and to destroy for the sake of building an earthly kingdom. Um, this is the constant or this is the consistent desire of the wicked man. But also in this proverb, it tells us what what is the end? This is a part of what Habakkuk is talking about in verse 12. It's a woe against the people that do this, right? It's a warning. It's a passage of judgment. In verse 19, Proverb 119, it says, So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. So in the end, the fruit that they, or the reward they get for destroying and taking and gaining by violence is that they lose their life that their life is gone um, for eternal destruction. Continuing in Proverbs, um, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 7, there are some more examples for the man of bloodshed. Proverbs 21, verse 7. The violence of the wicked will drag them away because they refuse to act with justice. Again, verse 7 is speaking of the violent or the man of bloodshed. And then again, the woe that is pronounced against them. Their own violence will be turned on their own head. They will be drug away. It will drag them away down to the pit, to destruction. Further in Proverbs chapter 29... 29 verse 10. Men of bloodshed hate the blameless, but the upright are concerned for his life. So this is another example of how the man of bloodshed, his goal is to, to destroy those who are blameless and those who are lowly and those who have no, done nothing wrong, but for the sake of their own unrighteous desire to gain wealth, they... Um, are destroying people, innocent people. Um, further in Micah, the book of Micah, 
chapter 3. <clears throat> um, here, this, the men of bloodshed in this context are the leaders of the country of Israel. And in Jerusalem, those who are of power, which is a constant theme throughout the history of mankind, that those in power, those who seek after building wealth and glory of man and all these sinful desires, are those who achieve this through bloodshed. Micah chapter 3, verse 9. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high place of a forest. So in verse 11, it identifies three groups of people, the leaders, the priests, and the prophets. And the motive for all of them is money, wealth. That's what this, that is the base of their wickedness is to, again, build up for themselves an earthly kingdom. But just as in Habakkuk 2, and we saw in the Proverbs, this is also a woe. What, what will happen to these people or to the nation because of this? In verse 12, therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. So they'll be destroyed for doing these things. They'll be destroyed for carrying out this type of injustice in the land. And this is what is, going, is being prophesied against uh, Babylon as well. So we, we know that this is a very wicked thing to do. Men of bloodshed, oppressing the needy, and um, building up an earthly kingdom um, with blood. But how does God view these people? Does God give us any indication outside of these passages of how he views this man of bloodshed? Um, for this, we'll go to Psalm 11 to answer this question. Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. So the his, in the NASB, at least is capitalized, his, because it's referring to the Lord in the clause previous. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his Soul hates. The his is speaking of God and God hating the man who loves violence. That this is the nature of God to hate wickedness. We, we know this and that he not only hates wickedness, but the man who carries out the wickedness. And this is, again, another example of the woe against the man who builds his house with bloodshed. If God hates you, then eternally you have no place in heaven. 
this destruction um, is the fruit of your labors. So now that we've examined the man of bloodshed, the character of the man of bloodshed and his standing before God and how he has his focus is on worldly gain, the worldly kingdom and wealth at all costs. What about the righteous? How, how would the righteous view, how should the righteous view wealth? We'll start in Proverb again, Proverb chapter 30. Proverb 30, verses 8 and 9. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty or, nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. So here the wisdom of the proverb is that the righteous man does not have deception, does not have lies, and does not want the great riches of the world. That's not his desire, but his desire is contentment. Contentment is the key to earthly, true earthly riches, because those who are uncontent with riches are never satisfied. They're never fulfilled in the riches. They just want more riches and will continue to spill blood for their entire lives. But the righteous are content. They're content with what they have and are happy and gracious with the gifts that God has given them. Uh, continuing in the Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31, um, verses 13 to 18. Speaking of the excellent wife. Proverbs 31, 13. She looks for wool and flax and work with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. So here in this description of the excellent wife, the one whose worth is far above jewels, as it says in verse 10, is that she's working. She's working with her hands. She's humble and she's seeking to care for her family. She's seeking to um, not be a busybody. She's not a gossip, but that she's taking care of her family. And that is where she finds um her contentment, her satisfaction with the work that she's been given to do on this earth. And she senses that her gain is good. So she's satisfied. She knows what she's doing is right before the Lord. She knows what she's doing is what she should be doing with her time on the earth. Not that she's always seeking for more and more and more wealth or that she um, is always uncontent with her circumstances. But she knows that what she's doing is right. And that is the righteous attitude of, of how we should do our work on the earth and be content. And finally, we'll go to 1 Timothy chapter 6.
1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. But godliness is actually, actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So again, as the apostle is teaching us, he says in verse 6, contentment. This is the focus of material possessions, that the godly man should be contentment because it's actual gain. If the wicked is never content, so they never actually gain anything with an ungrateful heart. <clears throat> um, again, in verse 8, content. Food and covering with these, we shall be content. If we have food on the table and clothes on our back, we should be content with these things and know that the Lord has blessed us to have these things. Um, and in this, this is our goal in terms of material possessions, to be grateful, to be thankful, contrary to the wicked, as it says in verse 10, it's the root of all sorts of evil. As we saw, it's the root of very great evil. Killing, stealing, deception, oppressing of the needy. These are the fruits of those who want to get rich. So we will continue in Habakkuk 2 on verse 13. Verse 13. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing. So we talked about how this is a woe against the man of bloodshed and that their pursuits on this earth we know ultimately will be vain. They will be destroyed for their wickedness. But verse 13 makes it clear that it's from the Lord. The Lord is causing this to happen. He's the one that is punishing Babylon for their bloodshed and violence, even though he is the one who has also raised up Babylon to destroy, um, to carry out judgment against other wicked people. But we know God is in control of everything. That is the nature of God. Um, some verses to support this is in Psalm 127. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. So again, as 
the wicked would build their house, not on the Lord, but with their own wickedness, that unless the Lord is watching out for them, um, they will be destroyed. It's, it's vanity. It's useless. Unless God has ordained it, God is, is keeping the city safe. We know that God, in the case of Babylon, that's what he's prophesying against, is that he is not the one building the house. He's not the one guarding their city. But in fact, he's the one bring, going to bring calamity against them. That this is um, the power of God. He, there is nothing beyond his control. Even the powerful, mighty nations of the earth. Um, another example of this is in Proverbs uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. It turns it wherever he wishes. So again, the king may seem like he's in control of the nation, especially the king of the greatest nation. But the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He can turn it wherever he wishes. He's in full control of whatever this king's heart's desires are. That's what the proverb is telling us. So we should not ever look at any circumstance on earth as beyond God's control. Um, even in the view of the destruction here, Babylon, you may be thinking that, you know, they're so mighty, there's nothing we can do. Um, why is the Lord not saving it? us? It's because the Lord is against you for your sin. And then in the same way for Babylon here, Babylon is against them for their sin. As he described in verse 12, their bloodshed. Another example of how God uses his influence and direction and guidance on the earth to carry out his will uh, can be seen in Judges chapter 9. So this is in the uh, recount of the men of Shechem and Abimelech, um, their wickedness of what they have done will be described in verse 24. We'll, we'll read Judges 9, 22 to 24. Now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubal might come, and their blood might be laid on Abimelech their brother, who killed them, and the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brother. So, the men of Shechem and Abimelech, you at one point in time, had conspired to commit this iniquity and this wickedness against the sons, or the brothers, excuse me, the brothers of Abimelech. Seventy sons they, they slaughtered. So, to carry out the destruction, God, in verse 23, God sent an evil spirit between them. So, now their enmity between one another is ultimately caused by God. That's for, um, in a retaliation or in a judgment against them. They committed wickedness and now God is turning them together against one another to 
execute judgment against them for their wickedness. And that's similar to how we see throughout history, we have the, the nations um, destroying one another, one after another. None of them are righteous. They're all wicked. And the destruction after them is to be paid for their wickedness. That's what's happening to Babylon. That's what God is prophesying against them. Um, further in the New Testament, we see an example of this as well in Second Thessalonians. Chapter two. Second Thessalonians, chapter two, verses 11 and 12. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they will, they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So we see this same principle again, the man of wickedness who desires bloodshed, desires deceit. God is bringing about this deluding influence so that they will follow false ways, idols, um, of the earth, their own wealth, whatever it may be, God is sending this upon them as a judgment against them because of the wickedness that they have taken pleasure in, as it says in verse 12. <clears throat> so returning back to Habakkuk 2.13. So we, we saw at the at the first half of the verse in 13, that the Lord is in control. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts? So all that is coming about is from the Lord of hosts. And what is coming about? That the peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing. So we alluded to uh, briefly that because of their ultimate destruction, not only physically as it will happen, throughout history, but spiritually being the main focus, that that is the woe, that they will do all this, put all this effort into building this earthly kingdom, but it's for nothing, absolutely nothing. To further explain this point, um, we'll go to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 20. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pasture. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. So again, he's describing the wicked here. That they will die, and that they'll just vanish. There's smoke. Smoke is very temporary. Smoke is easily... Um, swapped it away, it's easily dealt with. Um, and then in a moment, it's here, and in a moment, it's gone. This is how the wicked are. So they have you know, done all this great effort, but in the end, they vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. Um, further in Psalm 49, Psalm 49, verses 10 to 12. 
For he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations they have called their lands after their own names. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast, beasts that perish. So here we also see an example of those who have wealth. They have this wealth that they leave to others. That's the end of their wealth. They can't take it with them um, to the life to come. It doesn't profit them anything spiritually. Um, it's just left to others. They all perish. And it is the insane nature of the unbeliever, the one who denies these things that they know, everyone knows they're going to die, but they don't live their lives like it. In verse 11, it says, their inner thought is that their houses are forever. So they may say, oh, I, under you know, I understand death and, and, and I'm concerned about the life to come. But their inner thought, the very nature of their being in their conscious, they know, they think that their houses are forever. That's how they live. That's how they, um, the activities that they do, how they spend their time is the fruit that shows that this is truly what they believe. <clears throat> they, it says they've called their lands after their own names, and then they're prideful. Man in his pomp will not endure. So to think that you will live forever or that your wealth is worth anything, it comes from pride. Pride is the source of sin. And then... We see another example of a man accumulating wealth in vain efforts in Luke 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. <clears throat> but he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Be aware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this is a parable, an exact example of what we read in Psalm 49. He's a fool laying up his treasure on this earth, thinking that he has many years. He'll be fat and happy for many years to come. But he has no treasure stored up in heaven. And that's the important thing. That is the only thing that will ultimately matter. And again, that's the, in our 
obstinance or in our unbelief, in the mind of the unbeliever, they are foolish because they do not understand, you know, 70, 80 years now or eternity. To anyone who's sober-minded understands that that's a simple choice, but they have no faith that eternity will actually come or that the word of God is true. So continuing in Habakkuk chapter 2, we're now on to verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we've been alluding to the man of bloodshed and the man of wickedness. Their hope is vain in eternity. Their hope is vain in spiritual things. Um, Because we know, we see with our own eyes that there are men who are very wicked, who have lived many years on this earth and have not felt many pain, any pain, um, but continue to shed blood and oppress the needy. But that's not what God has in mind here when he's speaking of that they're toil for fire and they grow weary for nothing. He's speaking of the eternal and spiritual end. That's what he's describing in 14 because it, it speaks of the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The so cross references to this being Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45, verse 23. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. So this is speaking of every tongue and every knee, just as in verse 14 is speaking of the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So in this moment, everyone will recognize that God is God. God is the Lord and they will all bow down and worship. That's what it means by the knowledge. And Isaiah 45, 23 is also cross-referenced in the New Testament as well. We'll go to uh, Philippians um, chapter 2. Verses 10 and 11. Philippians 2 verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So again, here we see the whole earth being described here um, in verse 10. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is the whole earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's verse 11. It says explicitly the glory of God the Father. We, we see this here in Habakkuk. We see this in Isaiah. We see this in Philippians that the, the hope or the goal or 
the understanding is that ultimately this is what will happen. That when Christ comes again, and we know they mean the second coming because it's quoted in the New Testament, the Old Testament it is. So that's what Isaiah was prophesying for the second coming of Christ. That it will be this time when all the wickedness and all the evildoers will be judged. And that the, the Lord or the the earth will fill, be filled with the glory of the Lord. Everyone will, in the end, have to confess that God is Lord and that um, all their earthly efforts and their earthly kingdoms are worthless compared to the heaven, heavenly kingdom. Now, this is generally true, but Babylon specifically, in its wickedness and its bloodshed and how it conquered all the people in its idolatry. Um, it's a special type. It exemplifies so much of the wickedness that is in man's heart. So much so um, in Revelation chapter 17, the whole of the wickedness of mankind is summed up in Babylon. So we turn to Revelation chapter 17 verses 1 to 7. Revelation 17, 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads of ten and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations, and of the unclean things of her immorality. <clears throat> and on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her which has the seven heads and the ten horns. <clears throat> so in verses 1, um, it's speaking of a judgment. It's, it's speaking of the great harlot. So this is the personification of the spiritual idolatry that dwells within man. And it speaks of whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, verse 2. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So this is the source of, of so much wickedness on the earth, this idea of Babylon. Her name is Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and, and of the abominations of the earth, in verse 5. So as we study this destruction of Babylon, we see here that God, in verse 14, has the ultimate spiritual judgment in mind. It's not just the physical judgment of Babylon. 
because of what he's alluding to. We know that verse 14 hasn't happened. We know that it will happen in the second coming of Christ. And further in Revelation, in the final judgment, we see that this Babylon is a special type that exemplifies the wickedness of the world. So as we continue to study the book, it's good to see um, and understand this, that this particular Babylon and its great sin. But as we talked about verse 14, it's talking about the final judgment <clears throat> against those whose worth whose work is in vain, how would, in contrast to that, the righteous be ready? How should the righteous view that day? Oh, first, in Hebrews, um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. We need to read the word of God with this in mind. Hebrews 11, 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we know that we have heard the word of God say that this is going to happen. This is the final judgment. This is what's coming for those who love iniquity, who those who love bloodshed. But do we, are we convicted that it's going to come to pass? Because that is the faith. That is the definition of faith. We haven't seen this day. But are we sure that it's going to happen? And we need to understand that and have our, our hope fixed on that day. That is the very basis and the very basic element of faith because it has not happened yet. The assurance of things hoped for. So the hope, um, to see some examples of the hope, is in Revelation 6. Hope in the day of judgment. Revelation 6, verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. And because of the testimony which they had maintained, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servant and their brethren, who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So these Righteous martyrs, those who have been killed for righteousness, are wondering, they're asking the Lord, how much longer will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Verse 10. They're not, they're not asking if, they're asking when. They know that this is going to come to pass. This is the very hope that they died for, that they were murdered for. And, these, and this is a hope in this day of judgment um, that the righteous may have, that those who persecute them, those who are wicked, uh, just generally in the world, that it is in vain, that they, didn't, they will not win in the end per se, but that 
in Christ, um, we may have victory over them. We will have victory over them um, on the final day. And further, another view that the righteous should have on this final day during our time on the earth is in First Thessalonians uh, chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety and destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child. And they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And as a helmet of and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. So we see that the mind of the righteous is to be sober for this day. No different than we don't know the day we're going to die. We don't know the day that the Lord's going to return. But we should always be ready. Always be on the alert. Always be sober. Keeping the spiritual mind, the spiritual things in the front of our mind. And let us not lose sight of what truly is important. And having faith in the word of God that as we see in Babylon or throughout the world that these Wicked men, the men of bloodshed, they will build themselves earthly kingdoms. They will oppress the needy. They will destroy innocent lives. But God is in control. He will ultimately make their efforts vain. And we have to have hope in that or else we'll be anxious. Um, what is happening is if God is not in control. But we know that it will be in the day of judgment. Salvation for us and destruction for them. And let us always um, be fully convicted of that in our minds. Amen.